attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason, and I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week on the podcast, I told you we had some big stuff coming. I told you there's going to be some excitement happening this week. And uh, we're getting fired up for OJ90. You guys have heard about it. If you listen to the podcast, you've heard me talk about it for months now. OJ90 coming up May 6th. We're having a whole weekend of events. Friday night uh, men's event at North Shore Wellness and Sports, formerly Joy of the Game. And Saturday night, of course, at the Weston OJ90. It's going to be incredible. If you need to know any information about that, go to oj90.com, oj90.com. Everything is there. You can buy your tickets, you can book your hotels, etc. But we want to make sure people know about it. We also want to celebrate because, as you may have noticed, this is the 90th episode of the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast. And we couldn't let 90 happen without something special here as our 90th summer approaches. So, the boys this summer had a one of the boys this summer reached out to me with a really great idea. And I had considered something along these lines. These guys really put it into focus. You probably know, if you know anything about the podcast, that one of the big influencing moments to me creating the podcast was the passing of Steve Disnitzkin. And I wanted to figure out a way to honor him, and the boys this summer had it perfect. They said... Let's get the boys this summer together, and we'll tell Diz's stories. What more could I ask for? Perfect. So today's guest on the podcast are the boys of summer, but it's a tribute to Diz Nitzkin. The Diz, in all his glory, and is all his stories. You guys are going to love it. I know I did. So without further ado, here we go. Steve Diz Nitzkin on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. podcast that I'm so happy is happening. Uh, as many of you know, out there, both in the public land and at this table, uh, the passing of one Steve Dizzy Nitzkin was an impetus for this project. And I'm happy to have all of you here together to talk about Diz and give him the podcast he's not going to have the opportunity to record. So if you would please, starting at my left, introduce yourself and uh, your time at camp. Bob Bohm, I was a counselor at Camp Ojibwe in 1961-1962, worked mostly on the waterfront, but I've really been at camp 
since 1985, coming up each year since then. Jerry Walenka, Tampa, beginning of the 1950s through the end of the 1950s, a couple years short. Lots of memories, lots of amazing memories that just stuck and grew and changed. Good to be here. Hello, everyone listening on the podcast. This is Barry S. Feldman. I was brought to camp postseason as a little toddler. Started officially in 1961, and I haven't stopped coming. Thank you. George Kerman, first year Camp Ojibwe 1956. My last year, 1968. And I'm celebrating 60 years of friendship with Ronald B. Brody. I'm Ronald B. Brody, and I started at camp here in 1952, ended in 1972, but have been coming back many, many years. Bernard David Kerman started in 1956 through 65, then I was drafted into Uncle Sam's military in 1966, and I've been coming back Ever since, this is my 61st summer at Camp Ojibwa, Eagle River, Wisconsin, zip code 54510. 54512, I was just corrected. Thank you very much. Have a good Pesach. Bob Kaufman, started in 1961 was a camper through 67, a staff man through 75, and an ever-present visitor ever since. <laughs> Wake up, Ruff. Oh. Professor, professor. professor. <laughs> yeah, this is Professor Irwin, no. <laughs> Ken Rothney, 1966, camper for four, counselor for, JC for two, counselor for three, and I stopped because I got married in 1975. To present. Congratulations. Thank no, you. No, thank no. you very much. <laughs> okay, gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. Uh, it is a pleasure and an honor, my honor, to sit at this table with these guys. Who could tell me the information we were just discussing about Diz? What were his years at camp? Anyone? I think Diz started either in 49 or 50. And uh, as a matter of fact, Diz, I think, is the only person in Ojibwe history that was here in eight decades. Mm-hmm. 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the 210s. And not even Al Schwartz was here in eight decades. I think the only one approaching it is Elliot. And a number of us, if we keep coming back, will be here eight decades. But I think at this point, Dizzy was the only one that was here in eight different decades. Wow. Dizzy is the mini Minoso of Camp Ojibwe. Wow. <laughs> what is it about Diz that makes you guys love him so much? What is it about Diz that I've heard over and over? I pe- ask people stories about camp, first experience. Over and over, guys tell me, well, I met this big, gigantic staff man, and he did blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah is always one of the funniest things they can remember. Tell me about Tiz. Well, the first time I met Stephen Nitskin was in 1956, my first year here. I was in cabin 11, he was in cabin 12. At that time, cabin 12 was the only 
quote-unquote new cabin in camp. And uh, as a curious young man, uh, being in cabin 11, I wanted to see what a new cabin looked like. So after unpacking my footlocker and putting everything away, I took it upon myself to walk over to cabin 12. I opened the screen door and I stood on the counselor's porch looking around at the new cabin. Oh, this is nice. They were the only cabin in camp with a, with a toilet, with a, you know, with a washing basins, etc. And I'm looking around and suddenly this big man walks into the counselor's porch, picks me up, and fireman's carry on his shoulder, walks me, asks me what cabin I was in. I said, cabin 11. Walked me or carried me back to cabin 11, put me down, looked down at me and said to me, I don't, I don't ever want you coming back in this cabin again. That's the first time, the first person I really had any kind of physical contact with at Camp Ojibwe, June of 1956. Uh, for those of you listening at home, we should say that this episode of the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast is being recorded not only right here in the rec hall, a building where many of the men at this table had famous turns on that very stage, but we were in the midst of Collegiate Week, and a very tight Collegiate Week, as you may have heard the sweep cheer go by, and it's hard for us to keep our eyes off the Northwestern versus Boise State softball game on Diamond One as we speak. But... <clears throat> Moving on. Uh, other guys, talk about the first time you met Diz. Anybody? Sure, I'll go. Um, I met Diz, uh, it's sort of a vague memory. Uh, I was, it was either my first or second year at camp, so seven or eight years old. And we were on a canoe trip of some kind. Obviously not a three-day canoe trip. This was in the younger cabins, but uh, I remember kind of standing around, not knowing quite what I should be doing, like the rest of the cabin mates, because we were all so young. And I remember this really big guy, AKA Diz, and him um, lifting canoes um, off the canoe rack that camp used to have, and they still have, and, um, and uh, by himself, big heavy aluminum canoes, putting them in the water. And um, I also then remember me kind of aimlessly wandering around the little beach landing area, him kind of guiding, uh, picking me up, <laughs> placing me in a canoe, helping me with my uh, life preserver. So that was the first thing, just here's this big, giant guy I kept looking up to, actually straining my neck, because I was a little guy. And yeah, so him helping me, that was, uh, there was no, uh, no shtick then, no nothing, just, just someone sort of coming to my rescue who didn't quite know what to do on his first canoe trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Kauf? Um, I had known of Steve, but I didn't really know him. Um, I used to come up to camp after I was done being a staff man over visiting weekend uh, with a different group of people, including Barry and Kenny. Um, and then we bounced around to various weekends, and then one year I wound up here with the people that were at the time known as the old-timers, 
before their name was trademarked and to avoid the summer. Um, and I really didn't know who I was going to pair up with. We used to stay in the dad's lodge. Um, and the group said, you know, last year we had a little bit of problems. Uh, Dizzy Nitzkin snored so loud that they heard him all the way across the campus. And they suggested that since he snores so loud and I can't hear anything, we would be perfect roommates. <laughs> That's funny. And little did I know that it would be at the beginning of a decades-long friendship uh, and love that we had for one another. Uh, but that was my first real meeting with him. Nice. Dizzy and I were the same age. Um, we cabined together several times, and uh, uh, I typically played third base on the ball team, and he played first base, and he had this uncanny way of inviting you into the next thing he was going to say by wiggling his mouth and finally getting it out. His eyes were so expressive. And he looked at me and he said, well, he didn't call me Wanks then. He said, Jerry, he says, just throw it anywhere near first base. He said, I'll, I'll catch it. And he did. Any place you threw it near first place, he, yeah, he, he covered a lot of real estate over he there at first base for sure. And aside from covering real estate, as big as he was, that's how big his heart was. Mm. He was sensitive, he was empathetic. At a time and place when it wasn't that cool to be supportive of kids who were dealing with stuff going on, sure, he reached out. He had an amazing side to him that was very nurturing. Uh, I, this is Bob Bone, <clears throat> I had always heard about Camp Ojibwa, but I never went to camp. My friends went to camp, and they'd come home from camp and tell me their camp stories, and once in a while they'd talk about a guy named Dizzy. And then there was one summer, 1961, when, uh, uh, well, the two semesters before that summer, I was at Illinois, and they required me to take a PE course, so I figured, hey, I'll take a one-year PE course to, learn, to get certified as a water safety instructor. So, and I was, and I thought they would get me a job, and it did, they got me a job at Camp Ojibwa. <clears throat> so we come to camp, and we have our first meeting there, and they introduce Steve Nitzkin. I said, is, is that Dizzy Nitzkin? He says, yes, well, why do they call him Steve? He says, well, because he is now the camp manager, and Pearl thought that it was such an elevated <laughs> position, he should be called Steve and not Dizzy. So then, the first time I really had any interaction with, with Steve Dizzy Nitzkin was a basketball game. It was uh, a counselor game, uh, and uh, they didn't think I was good enough to play, but I was good enough to ref. So I was refing the game, and Diz comes in, substitutes in, and the uh, first time his man gets the ball, tweet, foul. So he looks at me, okay. About 30 seconds later, I call another foul on him. He looks at me, <laughs> and this is a big guy. About 10 seconds later, another foul, I can't avoid it. Suffice it to say, within about 90 seconds, he fouls out of the game. I call the last foul, and he looks at me, and he just smiles because he knows that he, I was right. But Diz just gave me one of his big, bare smiles, like, way to go, Bomer, you got me. Nice. How did Dizzy get the nickname Dizzy? 
Because I know. That's Does anybody know? Dizzy Dean. No. No. Yeah. He had a brother who went to right. camp here. Right. It was right. And his brother, when he would swing the bat, right. would spin around <laughs> and then run the first base. And they say, well, he got dizzy spinning around. So when his brother came, they called him dizzy. That's fine. Is that right? Is that close? That is correct. Okay. That is correct. We we actually uh, found some warriors with the brother from the 40s in it. So Stu hadn't seen any of that. And uh, uh, Ralph? I, um, in my years of 66 through 74, Diz wasn't here. And I don't think you guys, the old timers, were coming up then. So yes. I didn't really know yes. him as a uh, yes, we were. camper junior counselor counselor. But I hooked on with the old timer Boys of Summer group later on in the uh, uh um later on as camp progressed and that's when i got to be kind of his friend and and one of the boys of summer uh, teammates with him and he was a terrific guy as big as he was that's how nice he was yeah it was fun to hang out and be up here and hear him laugh and smile and do all of all those camp things that we're doing today without him unfortunately i remember Diz when i was seven years old and I don't remember not knowing Diz after that. He's, he, he's been a part of our lives for all those years. Um, one thing I do remember about him that uh, stands out to all of us is that um, as big as he was, he could take one of the inner tubes uh, from the beach, throw it in the water in the deep end, and dive through it when the, the in interior was probably only six or seven or 12 inches wide. And he, can actually, he actually was able to dive through it. And every year when we would come up as old timers, even after he lost weight, he would dive through that. And was that fully tube. inflated? Fully inflated. <laughs> Not the story, but the tube. The tube. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, that was Ronald Brody. I'm uh, George Kerman. My first memory of the Diz is as an 11-year-old in Cabin 6, my first year, 1956, little guy, and here's this 14-year-old guy, and back then, an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old was a big difference. And I just remember this really big guy, and that was the Diz. Uh, fast forward a few years, and I am now in Cabin 13, and this is a JC. And as everyone knows, in those days, uh, the, all the, the JCs waited all the meals. Mm. And the configuration in the mess hall was different. There was an aisle down the middle, and the cabin, uh, the cabin tables were on either side. And in the, in, the, uh, rec in the mess hall was a buzzer and a red light mm. above the staff table. And when Al Schwartz or Sid Novak or Denny got up to make a, an announcement, and the rec hall was noisy, the red light would come on. Now, if the noise continued and the red light uh, wasn't enough, then Pearl would reach over and hit that buzzer. How'd that buzzer sound? <laughs> it wasn't like a basketball buzzer or any other buzzer you ever heard. It was, was just. That again? I'll tell you. <laughs> now, the Diz was famous for imitating that buzzer. <laughs> and when Diz had a tray full of dishes or whatnot and was headed down the aisle and back into the kitchen, one of the cabins would spot him and they'd give the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. 
and that was Diz's cue, and Diz mimicked that buzzer to a T, and he got a big cheer every time he did it. So that's my first real shtick memories of Diz. Uh, fast forward a few more years. I'm going to get these out of the way. Sure. Fast forward a, a few more years, and uh, I'm now a senior counselor as uh, well. Diz had made up his years as a senior counselor, and he became camp manager. Uh, and what he would do is he was basically Al Schwartz's right-hand man. He'd run into town. He'd pick up the mail. He'd pick up... Uh, necessities at camp uh, needed. He helped Al in the kitchen. He did all kinds of stuff. And uh, I was a counselor in cabin three, cabin five, and we became closer. Uh, our ages, now the three years wasn't that big a difference. And we started to realize we had some things in common, especially our love of music, jazz music especially. Instrumental, big band, anything, vocal. So I had a stereo in my cabin, and when this had some extra time, he'd come into the cabin, when the kids were out of the cabin, uh, playing ball or whatever, this would come into the cabin, and we'd each grab a bed, and we'd put on our jazz records, uh, the likes of Ahmad Jamal and Oscar Peterson, that type of thing, and we'd lay back and just chill out and listen to these records, just me and the Diz. So that's a first uh, personal, real experience that uh, we had together. Nice. Uh, let's fast forward again. And uh, we're now the Boys of Summer, the old timers. And one of the traditions that evolved over the years was uh, the pontoon boat. And Diz would drive the boat. He was Captain Diz. And on those uh, excursions, we would bring a boombox, playing the oldies from the 50s and the 60s. And in inevitably, Diz would always say, man, those Rolling Stones, they were the best band ever. Well, I couldn't let him get away with that. <laughs> so I would say to him, Diz, what are you talking about? The Rolling Stones were the best band ever. I said, first of all, you got the Beach Boys, you got the Beatles, you got Chicago. I'd rattle off a few other bands. I'd say they were such better musicians. I'd say they were such better composers. You know, you're talking about guys like Brian Wilson and Mike Love, Lennon and McCartney. These guys wrote some of the greatest songs in rock and roll history. They're much better singers. I'd said they harmonize any way, any, any type of band harmony you'd ever want to hear. I said, you were lucky if the uh, Rolling Stones ever could harmonize two notes. Well, <laughs> with that, every single year, the same shtick, Diz would look at me, he'd give me his quivering lip, and he'd say, George, I'd say, yeah, Diz, knowing, of course, what's coming next. F you. <laughs> of course, he didn't say F. Those aren't your initials, George. And then he'd, he'd turn around and start driving the boat again. <laughs> but the best of all memories happened also on the pontoon. I always sat in the back under the canopy. Can't stand that hot sun. And we'd be... Ex uh, 
cruising around the lakes, enjoying all the beautiful scenery, the water, the beautiful homes on the lake, the tree lines, just absolutely gorgeous. And after about 20 minutes of this, the Diz would turn around, give me his look, give me his smile, and he knew it was coming next because we did it every year. And I'd look at him and I'd say, Diz, it doesn't get any fucking better than this. <laughs> and he'd just give me his smile and turn around and start driving. And we did that every single year. Nice. Nice. Thank you. Absolutely. Nice, George. I could chime in on a couple things about my best memories of Diz. And believe it or not, they were not necessarily here at camp. This is Bernie Kerman, by the way. Hello, Bernie. Um, Hi, Bernie. Bernie. I was a very, very poor high school student. Um, we had 370 kids in our high school graduating class, and I graduated 329. <laughs> um, and for some... And I looked up to him. <laughs> <laughs> and for some silly reason, I was admitted, and I have no idea why they admitted me to the University of Illinois. No way I should have ever, ever tried to get into college. Uh, this was in September of 61. By April of 62, my grades were so bad. I mean, I haven't even finished my first year of college. I mean, I barely got, I don't know, I got three Fs and a D or something like that. But in any case, in April of 62, I came down with an appendectomy. And I was admitted to Carl Clinic down in Champaign, Illinois, and they took out my appendix. I'm getting, I'm getting fucked up now. We loved your appendix, too. Yeah, <laughs> You're lucky. And I went to that clinic once. Yeah. You're lucky you went in for an appendectomy, <laughs> and they didn't take out your tonsils. And, and Diz showed up the very next day after surgery, and he sat at the foot of the bed, and here I am with, you know, I got needles in me, I got their feet, you know, you know I, you know, whatever they give you after surgery. And I got the stitches, brand new stitches in my side. And he starts cracking jokes. Now, you can imagine my stomach was still hurting from the, from the surgery. And the, and the stitches still in there. And he's cracking jokes. And I'm trying desperately not to laugh because I was in such pain. And Diz was the only one to come and see me at the hospital. Now, fast forward uh, six years ago, six, okay. six, six years ago, 2010, uh, well, actually, a couple years prior to that, I, I sold my house in Northbrook and moved out to South Barrington into an active adult community, 55 and older. And uh, I came relatively active in the village, in the community there. And in 2010, I ran for public office in the village, and I was elected to public office in the village of South Barrington as a village councilman and trustee. Um, and at the swearing-in, my swearing-in, um, the ceremony for uh, being elected to office, I look up, and who's out there? Diz came to the ceremony 
of my swearing in. So two of my great memories of Steve was not necessarily here at camp, but away from camp. But that's just an example of who he was and what kind of friend. Well, I think you touch on one of the great things about this place. Camp isn't necessarily always about the memories that happen at camp, but it's about the people and the connections you make at camp that then create these memories for a lifetime, whether they happen here or elsewhere, for sure. And, and by the way, uh, I didn't make it through my first year at the University of Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> Not for Bernie. So is that a uh, reflection on South Shore High School, Bernie? <laughs> so it's up on New and down to South Shore. It's a reflection on me. Uh -huh. Okay, good. We As uh, the people at this table know, uh, being a boy of summer is just not a five-day enterprise every year uh, during the camp season. Um, being a boy of summer starts on the Tuesday after we returned home from our trip to Eagle River, at which point Bernie begins to send out emails that say in exactly 51 weeks, five days, four hours and 16 minutes, certain things are about to happen. And in the old days, Diz and I used to come up early on Wednesday morning and the rest of the group came up later. Um, and the routine was that he would pick me up at 6 a.m., not 5 to 6, not 5 after 6, not 2 minutes at 6 a.m., he would show up at the door of my house and say, Mr. Koff, it's time to go. i get in the car, and we would drive, and driving with this was uh, an interesting adventure in those days <laughs> because he had one impediment and one addiction. The addiction was to cigarettes, mm -hmm. and there's nothing like cigarette smoke. Sure. Um, and the uh, problem was that he suffered from sleep apnea. <laughs> so driving to Eagle River with Diz, I had a choice. <laughs> Either put up with the fact that he was smoking or keep my eyes glued on him so he didn't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes he was doing both. Sure, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but uh, the off-season... Uh, when Bernie would send out these emails from time to time, and the subject matter varied. Usually it was camp, but sometimes it drifted over to politics. Mm -hmm. I were sort of of a like mind on politics, distinct from Bernie's <laughs> mind on politics. So every once in a while, Diz would send me an email, and he says, things are too quiet. Send out an email <laughs> lauding some Democratic politician and let's see Bernie go. <laughs> I never knew that. I never knew that. Oh, God. Hence the tradition. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I think. Don't get him started. Since he is gone, I just take it upon myself. <laughs> I never knew that. So, um, so I remember a conversation with Diz about Bernie who didn't graduate and who didn't last. And him and I looking at each other and saying, but Bernie is the alpha male in this circle. And the stuff that he's about and the way he touches every man with his humor and with his spirit goes way beyond any diploma ever. 
No question about it. Yes, he touched me last night. Two timer. That is the Ojibwe way. Also, uh, always uh, included a, a stop in Shriners. And, um, and for those who don't know, what is that? What is Shriners? Shriners yes. is, a tri let's put it this way Shriners was a diner before people in the restaurant business started to create diners. This was what a restaurant was in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Waitresses, waitresses in white dresses wearing little badges with their names and the number of years of service. <laughs> a full menu serving only the freshest of everything. Sure. Um, a restaurant into which in, in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, that we've all stopped every year coming up here. Uh, unlike some of the younger people who take bypasses around that uh, road, don't say uh, bypass. But we don't like the, we don't like the bypass. But when when we walked, at least in the old days when we walked into the restaurant, we were by 20 years the youngest people in the restaurant. Mm. So, um, but he and I would fight over the check every year, and we'd go back and forth. And even in the off season, we would fight over the check. And once I got really upset because. He would want to take the check for everything, for everyone. And uh, when I got out of the car after we came home, I put $20 in his council. And then I sent him an email the next day, said, look in your council, I got the last laugh. Well, I thought I had. Next year, we're driving up, and we get to Shriners, and the check comes, and he takes out an envelope. <laughs> he had put the $20 in an envelope. And the envelope became a tradition. Every year, whatever the change was from the check went into the envelope. Off-season things, money went into the envelope. And when he passed away, he told Suey, I understand that the car belongs to you, but the envelope belongs to the boys. Nice. That's he called each of us on the phone yeah. Yeah. to let us know that he was going to be leaving. And it was a call out of the blue sky, and it was hard to know what the hell to say. And uh, it just, uh, he just reached out, very matter of fact, and he said it is what it is. And when we were on the phone, he reminded me of the time that I came up to him, and I said, Diz, take the fucking cigarettes and throw them, toss them, let them go. I said, and we don't always need to go for that late night pizza when we're up here. There was nobody that drove those late night extra pizzas. And he looked at me with a quivering lip and a smile, and he said, well, Winks, well, what's another year or two? I'm doing it the way I like it. There you go. This was also the confidant of a lot of us because he was our insurance man. He sold us our life insurance policies, uh, especially after Mickey Schwartz kind of faded into more of a corporate health care type of line. Mm. The Diz uh, would come to your house and advise you and guide you in what you needed or didn't need in the way of a life insurance policy. And, uh, you know, you felt fine revealing your uh, monetary financial situation to Diz was no problem. And uh, so I'm sure for a lot of us, uh, he was that confidant. And, uh, you know, I miss that. Yeah. 
And back in 2005, this is Bob Bone. Back in 2005, the Bone family built a home up here, in, uh, which we euphemistically call the Bonestead. Anyway, in 2005, I invited the boys of summer over for dinner. With, at that time, it was two nights. And Diz, who had a cute sense of humor, as was, has been stated here, says, Bomer, I have a gift for you. Okay. He says, but it's a two-stage gift. He says, I'll give you part of the gift tonight, part of the gift tomorrow night. Great, this. It's kind of you to think of us. He says, okay, and give me a box. So I open the box, <laughs> and in the box is one of these hooks that you screw into the wall. I mean, if you, you buy uh, the five for a penny. You just screw them into the wall. I said, well, thanks, Diz, for trying to be to think of me. We don't have any of these around here. Fine. Next night, he comes in, and he's carrying a bag. He says, Bomer, this is the other part of the gift. I open it up, and it's a salami and a string. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was perfect Diz. It was loving, it was humorous, he meant it, it was thoughtful, and it was funny. And that was Dizzy. We used to uh, stop at a place called Gus and Ann's on our way out of camp going back to uh, Chicago. And every year we'd stop there, they'd be happy to see us. We were, um, we'd talk with them, take pictures with Gus and Ann. And one year, Diz left early. And so when we got to Gus and Ann's, you know, we're having breakfast, and we get our wallets out to pay. And he says, no, no, Diz took care of it. He had driven through earlier, stopped, <laughs> paid him, and uh, wow. we had a free meal from Diz. <laughs> he, we've touched on it a little bit. Uh, Diz was, if you didn't know Diz, he was an enormous man. I mean, especially um, height is a premium here at Camp Ojibwe. <laughs> Not a lot of guys reach six foot at Camp Ojibwe, and Diz was probably six five, I would assume, six four, six five. Six three minimum. Uh, yeah, and a big, I mean, easy 300 pounds all the time. I knew him at least. He got up to four of them. Yeah. Um, so my guess is that there are probably some Paul Bunyan-esque stories about the sports fields as well, being such an oversized guy. Was he a good athlete? He was a, a very, uh, like uh, Wanks said in his story, he was a first baseman. Played first base probably since he was three. <laughs> but uh, he was a big first baseman. There were a lot of good first basemen in the history of Ojibwa during our years. But Diz was uh, always there. Uh, he's always the guy playing first and uh, always enthusiastic. He I know he played high school basketball at Lakeview High School in Chicago, and uh, probably a lot of the reason was was because of his size. Sure. But he loved playing basketball. He just loved basketball, uh, and and he was he was you know for his size and girth he was a good athlete. Yeah. He was really agile. He moved around not knowing that he was his size. Mm -hmm. uh, he also was our anchor. We had a historic tug of war back in... 93. 93, And he and Jerry Vegan were the respective anchors on uh, either of the teams, and uh, our anchors are both gone now. I was going to say, now I've seen him tug, uh, maybe it was nine or ten years ago now, you guys were challenged by, I believe, Cabin 14 that year. 
and uh, I guess really put the work in. But I think Cabin 14 might have gotten the best of you that year. Yeah, it's a little. Yeah, 10 years later, they did get the best of us. You know, we were all now in our. Well, in 93, we're still in our 50s. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's different from 50 to, you know, to being your, in your uh, early 60s. But who was it that uh, the, the second time we challenged the, uh, or they challenged us, the old times, the tug of war, that this is Bernie Kerman, by the way. Was it him that was laying flat on his back, holding the rope as they were tugging us across the line? He was, so remember that? <laughs> Didn't he win the first tug of war? Oh, he won the first one. He killed him. It was, oh, it was, yeah. uh, and yeah. we were challenging. That was on the campus. It's, it's that important. was on the campus, right. The one we lost was on Diamond, Diamond two. 2. But the one we won was against the... Kevin 14. Yeah. Okay. And they challenged us. So it's important to and, get that on tape here for right. us. And, and I, think, sure. I believe, if, if, if uh, I recall properly, Kim and 14, we let them have about 15 or 16 guys against us eight. That's true. That is true. And you had Futransky as well, who was also helping you out. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we beat them. It was, you know, best two out of three, and we beat them two in a row. It wasn't, it wasn't close. The one we lost on, didn't Elliot blow the whistle early because we kind of <laughs> thought we passed over the line that won it for us? Correct. And we loosened up. That seems right. That seems right. Yeah. And then, <laughs> imagine that. Elliot said, "No, you got to go over this line." And as a result, we lost that. And to, talk. up till then, Elliot had never blown a call. Even here honoring Diz, we can't avoid blowing calls by Elliot. What about the rec hall stage? Was that a place where Diz ever exercises? Absolutely. Diz, Diz and I, are some of our first years here, we were in the Wizard of Oz together. Mm. And uh, I was Dorothy. And Diz was Oz. <coughs> and uh, he was terrific. He had a great voice. He loved, he, he, uh, uh, he was all about showmanship. I mean, there isn't anybody in this circle that, that doesn't have the same, in, in France, I guess they call it shtick, you know, so. Um, but he was, he was, uh, he had a great voice, he had a terrific sense of humor, he uh, loved to be in productions. Mm. Diz was one of the legendary end men in the minstrel right. show and the Jubilee. Always, always, he, he loved uh, telling the jokes as an end man, and the hand routine, he loved it. Uh, he loved being on stage. He was uh, he was a great end man, and uh, he was uh, I believe uh, Cecil B V D, <laughs> and I think he was Howard N Polina. <laughs> so, uh, he, he loved he loved being on the stage. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I think that you guys all know this, but maybe to put it into the right framework, posterity wise. Um, I only knew Diz, obviously, through you guys coming up and visiting and a few handful of conversations you would have, like I would have with all you guys over the years coming up and sitting on the bench and chatting or sitting at dinner and chatting. And uh, and it was one year when uh, you guys came up and Diz wasn't here. And I was I didn't know anybody or anything. What's going on? Why isn't Diz around? And, well, he's a little, you know, he's dealing with some illness. And that was that. And 
And it was in that moment, really, that, you know, these ideas about a history project and about sort of the, our stories and all this stuff, it all really kind of came together because it really is about, you know, you guys sit out on that week bench with guys who are 30 and 15 and 9, and you have a conversation. You're all talking the same language. When you tell a story about a stunt going wrong on the rec hall stage, a 10-year-old knows exactly what that means because they've seen it. And there's, a, there's this ability, and whether it's about this place or just the sort of kinship and brotherhood we all have with Ojibwa, it translates. And so it wasn't that Diz passed away. None of us are going to win that fight. We're all going to lose that one eventually. But it was that Diz's stories weren't getting told. He wasn't sitting on that bench telling his stories. And seeing that disappear was what really started this whole project. That was it. It was about let's, let's find a way to get those stories down. The last time I saw him, was in April of that year. He was in my office with Sue. And he said, I have something to tell you. I said, okay. He said, I have stage four cancer and there ain't no stage five. And I was obviously blown away by that. And then he proceeded to tell me, but I have scheduled the treatments so that I can come up for a dribble basketball camp the second week in June. And then there'll be more treatments, and I'll be able to come up with you guys in July, and then everything is going to be fine. Never doubt it for a minute. Did he believe it? He did believe it. Um, it was just devastating. It was all around very fast. Yeah. Probably the greatest honor a lot of us had was the day uh, at the funeral home when, um, I'm sorry, at the shul when Stewie came up to us and told us that Diz's last request was that the boys of summer be his pallbearers. That's pretty amazing stuff. Stu and Steve, Broads tell yeah, us. Yeah, there's another story that um, we have all talked about amongst ourselves, and that was um, a number of years ago, uh, I, I got an invitation to a, uh, an anniversary party um, in, uh, I think, Michael's, Del Michael's uh, hot dog place in Chicago. So I'm figuring, you know, it was, from, it was for um, Steve and Sue. And I'm thinking, <laughs> who in the hell are Steve and Sue? <laughs> Sue. Steve and Sue, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I figured Chicago, maybe it's something to do with camp. So I called George. I said, George, I got an invitation. He says, yeah, I got one too. I said, who in the hell are Steve and Sue? <laughs> and he said, that's exactly what I thought. That's exactly what we all thought. We had no idea. If it said Diz and Sue, we would know what it is. Steve and Sue. We had no idea. We could, everybody I, there was everybody, 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 everybody was calling everybody else. Was, who the hell? Who's who Steve? Steve? You know, and, <laughs> so, uh... Just my quick spin on this and a couple of shticks that I remember. Um, just, you know, and everyone said it. Um, physically big, his heart huge. Um, kind, clever, funny, sticky to the nth degree, you know, could keep up with anybody. So, and just made you feel good about being <coughs> with him, around him, whatever you were doing. Sorry. So, um, Let's see, one of the uh, things I remember was um, our pontoon ride. And I remember one time, and it became a tradition for a number of years, a little shtick, I shouldn't say tradition. Um, 
we were, you know, getting ready to pull out, I had to take a leak. <laughs> so, Diz, I gotta go. No, we're, come on, we're going. So I said, okay, I'll hang in and hold it. So we're, and I was helping. He said, Mary, could you go get the rope? So I untied the rope, and we're slowly backing out. Everyone is, is in their seats, and I'm getting ready, and I thought, I can't hold this. So <laughs> Diz wasn't looking, so I proceeded. And it was, you know, we were off far enough, no one was around camp to see, now that you know. Um, and I started to take a leak. Well, Diz, you know, always kind of knew what was going on. You thought he wasn't, you know, aware. And as I go hanging over the side, very well, um, <laughs> the water, the water I was, was as I was trolling over the side, sure, sure. all of a sudden, Diz, Diz, Diz gives the gas a little, and there I am, and I, I get spritzed in the face, <laughs> not by the water. So, and then, you know, and then, uh, it's funny, and I thought, nah, no way he'll do this again. So, and I went to another part of the boat, sure enough, I go here, and he's giving me a, so, you know, I, I developed serious kid, no, I didn't do <laughs> But this, for years and years, I, you know, we would go back and forth for me. Thank God I wasn't trying to take a dump. I'd be insane. The other really clever, I don't know if anybody remembers this. We were having lunch in the mess hall, and we're sitting, I want to say over on the, uh, between, around cabin, what's on the side, eight or nine? The even numbers, whatever. So, um, and a kid was, uh, whatever cabin, eight or nine was over there, and we were sort of, this and I were watching, there was sort of a kid who was, I don't know, I don't want to say he was treating his cabin mates not well, maybe bullying, I don't know, but he was kind of a big, shoddy, arrogant, loud kid. And so he, they needed something from the table, and this kid comes over and just kind of grabs the pitcher of water, and this was always funny, he'd give him a look, you know, kidding around, but the kid didn't even, it didn't phase him, took the water to his table and came back. Comes back, uh, uh, maybe 10 minutes later, he says, uh, hey, can I, give me the ketchup? And this is, look, I'm sitting right next to this, and he goes, what? He says, the, the ketchup, just give it to me. <laughs> oh. And the kid reaches for the ketchup, and he's staring at him. And this is a big presence, big presence. And this grabs the ketchup. He says, you really want the ketchup? And he says, yeah, I do. I mean, just give it to me already. So he says, all right. And we're challenging him. Put out your right hand. And the kid looks at Disney eye, and... You know, he's not going to back down. This is a, you know, a tough kind of kid. Puts his right hand out, diz, uncapped, <laughs> squirts a pile of ketchup in his hand. Didn't think he could do it, and the kid kind of looks. I was sitting next to him. I thought, yeah, get involved in the shtick. I took, uh, there were fries, took a fry, dipped it in. I started eating the fry from the kid's hand. Anyway, he goes back to, sort of goes back to his table with his tail between his legs and his ketchup in his hands, certainly. Comes back a minute later, he was, he was hacked, we could see. We were kind of laughing, and he came back. Since we want the mustard now. Same routine, and the kids thought, no way. Mustard. <laughs> and I, Diz says, and we looked at each other because they, they had pickle spears, and Diz looks at him and says, would you like to give me the, uh, like to give you the pickle spears here? He had both hands tied up, and obviously he said, turn around. <laughs> so, we didn't see him anymore that meal, but yeah, it was, it was, that was a, yeah, was a very, very personal moment for all of us. So. Well, jo gentlemen, we have the joy of being uh, joined by Diz's son, Stu, who's yes. joined us here in studio. Yes, Stu. Uh, 
to come come get in on this. So it's just been we've just been doing about an hour just talking about your dad, reminiscing some great stories. Great, can't wait to hear it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I've heard them all. <laughs> Never know. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to share with us? About yeah, I had a couple of good stories about him. And one was actually after he passed away. I took my mom down to a charity event, and um, it was maybe a year. It was when I was thinking about coming back to camp. And my mom and I were talking about it, and uh, she's like, well, you know, you know, if you want to do it, you should go do it. You know, I know you love it. Your father loved it. And I go, yeah. I go, what was it like when you first met him hearing about camp? Like, what was your intro to camp? And she goes, you know, I didn't, it was a little difficult for me the first two years. And I was like, why? He's like, well, my dad had a daughter from our first marriage who was living with them. My mom had my older sister who was two years older than me. She had me and she had the twins. So she's like, when we got married, your dad made it really clear. The third Wednesday in July, I'm gone. No matter what, come hell or high water, I'm gone. So sure enough, in one of those years, it was, my mom had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and was pregnant with twins with a, a teen in the house. And my dad's like, see ya. <laughs> And she's like, you're kidding, right? Like, I need some help. He's like, call your sister or someone. I'm going to camp. <laughs> so she says that her, uh, you know, she had a lot of hate with camp for the first few years. <laughs> and uh, she learned to appreciate it even more. But uh, my favorite memories of camp were when I was a camper and all you guys used to come up. I mean, visiting was fun with my mom and dad, but in, that, in those days it was real short. But then when you guys came up, I remember I would sit in the doorway of my cabin and wait for you guys to pull up if I thought, I had no idea when you were coming, but I, you guys, Cough and my dad always would come on the early shift. So I would just sit in the doorway during rest period and just wait for him to pull up. And the, I just vividly remember, and especially as I was getting older and appreciating camp for what it was, those were uh, good memories when you guys used to come up. And, he, and to, to his credit, he was happy to see me, but he was more <laughs> <laughs> happy to be here. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Good. <laughs> it's not true, Stu. He was crazy about you. No, he couldn't wait to get up here. He was crazy about you guys, too. He talked about, I mean, even before you guys got on the whole email shtick that you, that you currently still have going on there. Absolutely. I will admit that I delete many of them. <laughs> my Me too. <laughs> but even before that, he, I mean, all off-season, he talks about you guys all the time. It's great memories. For sure. You guys are a pretty incredible group, and there's no question that Des was right at the heart of that. I mean, maybe he was the heart of it. He, biggest heart in the whole camp and, and a big sense of humor. Um, it's been awesome to sit with you guys and talk about it. Any, any last thoughts before we move on to the special musical portion of today's episode? Anybody? Thoughts? No. We'll keep our traditions going with Diz in our hearts, and, you know, he's, he's, still, he's still with us. He's always will be. He's an Ojibwe legend. We missed him last night, was a good example. We were on the pontoon boat violating one of the rules of camp uh, late at night. That was Bob Kaufman. And Ron Burry. And Ron Burry. Oh. And, uh, Camp's attorney. Camp's ex-attorney. We were staring at the captain's seat on a boat. 
where he would have been sitting, puffing away with us, and uh, we miss him dearly. All right, I think that says it all. Uh, so the boys of summer have been kind enough to work with Lou Mager, special guest Lou Mager, who is also in the house. A new boy of summer, but uh, uh, bringing the musical talent strong, and they have worked up a little musical number to go with this show today. So uh, take it away. Lou, you want us over there? Yeah. Okay. Okay, that is it. Another big episode in the books this time. Diz Nitzkin with a proper tribute from the Boys of Summer and his own son, Stu. Uh, it was awesome. I know the sound was a little rough on that one. We did a roundtable recording right in the middle of the rec hall, right in the middle of Collegiate Week. Uh, but I also think it sort of captured all the spirit of what camp is and what camp means to those guys and what camp meant to be is. So... Uh, 
like I said, I, ho- I dug it a lot. I hope you guys did too. It's going to be a big week here. Uh, come back tomorrow. We're going to have a brand new episode tomorrow as well. So stay tuned for that. Um, also, tomorrow, head on out to Joy the, formerly Joy of the Game, uh, the North Shore Wellness and Sports. And uh, we're going to have an open gym from 10 to 12 for the current campers or any, any Ojibwe guys want to show up. I'll have the Ojibwe mobile out there. You can get yourself a free T-shirt. Uh, in addition to that, uh, people are going to be voting for the new Collegiate Week teams. So the, the new th- three teams that are going into the mix for next year. And uh, in case you don't know, the Camp Ojibwe History Project has officially endorsed the University of Kentucky Wildcats for inclusion into Collegiate Week this year. So hopefully uh, hopefully we'll find some supporters for that endorsement and the Wildcats will finally make their way into Collegiate Week. I think it's about time. Winning is program in NCAA history. Just saying. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at org. Swing by the website. Tons of new updates. All the Warriors, all the way up through 2017 are now there. Uh, I just put up the stunts, all the stunts from 2016's Collegiate Week Stunt Night just posted. Uh, a lot of new fun stuff. Some new medicine men. So go check out what you've been missing over there. And uh, make sure you come back all this week. We're going to be doing episodes all week long. We want to make sure you guys know about OJ90. We want to celebrate our 90th episode. It's a big time at camp. And what better thing to do than to create a whole bunch of content for you. So that said, it's a gorgeous day. I'm going outside. I'm going to have a cigar. <laughs>